We see people, you know, having adverse outcomes because of these social determinants of health, having to make a decision if they're going to get radiation therapy versus go to work, having to make the decision if they're going to skip another component of care because they've run out of sick days and their employer is going to fire them if they don't return to work. So you see these things in real yeah. time that it's hard to disengage and say, well, it's not really my problem. So it's just hard to disengage. This is the James Cancer Free World podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Dr. Samilia Obing Jesse, or also known as Dr. Sam. Dr. Sam is a surgical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer, and her research focuses on the field of what's called social determinants of healthcare, such as income levels and access to health care and the financial and emotional stress of a cancer diagnosis and the ensuing treatment that can result in more aggressive cancers, worse outcomes, and even higher death rates. Research has found uh, this is especially prevalent for Black women diagnosed with breast cancer. So this is a, a really important topic, one that we need to talk more about, and one that Dr. Sam is a, a leader in working to reduce. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This concept, this term social determinants and health disparity and health inequity, there's a lot of different terms, and I think there might be a little confusion about what they each mean. So kind of fill us in on the different terms, what they mean, and how they all tie together to lead to problems in healthcare for certain groups of people. So the first concept we should start with is the idea of health equity. What health equity means is that everybody in a society is able to live up to their full health potential. Now, in order to be able to do that, you have to live in a society where the social determinants of health enable you to access the resources you need to reach your full health potential. Social determinants of health describe where you live, where you work, and where you play, and when, where you worship. So it describes your living and working conditions. Negative or adverse social determinants of health can result in health inequalities and also can be due to health inequity. Health inequity describes governmental policy and also social or cultural values that result in health inequality. So health inequality is when populations have differences in um, the incidence or the um, prevalence of disease. They have uh, differences in access to care and also have differences in outcomes uh, from care. So it sounds like where you live, your economic status are the beginning that that could lead to not having access. And if there's, um, health inequity, where there's not federal programs, that leads to inequality, which leads to worse outcomes. Is that, am, am I getting it? Yes, you're getting it. So let me give you a good example that might help. So in the 1800s, the United States government had a policy called the Indians Appropriations Act, where they moved American Indians onto reservations. This policy had significant implications because it changed the social environment that American Indians were living in, right? So reservations are different than living off a reservation. This has had long-term consequences for the health of American Indians because as a result of this governmental policy, 
and this change in living and working conditions, they now have a higher incidence of diseases like diabetes um, and other illnesses that results in them having a higher probability of premature death, which is dying at an earlier age. So that's an example of how a governmental policy or a structural inequity results in inequality, which is differences in diseases, which then results in poor outcomes for that population. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it makes me think about coming closer to the to the current times that these some sort of public housing, large public housing projects in urban centers could be in a, a modern equivalent of that. Is that at all true? So the way to think about that is how neighborhoods in this country are generally structured. So neighborhoods in this country are not arbitrary, right? There have been governmental policies or there have been sociocultural norms that dictate where people can live. There have also been um, policies or um, approaches by, for example, uh, the banking industry to invest in certain communities and to not invest in other communities. So what has happened is that we have neighborhoods in this country where some are very resource rich. They have great schools. They have wonderful grocery stores. They have access to libraries, access to parks. And we have other neighborhoods that don't have parks that don't have good opportunities for employment and that don't have good schools. So as a result of these policies and also these investments by organizations or structures in our society, we have differences in terms of the resources people have available to them, which affects their behaviors and also can affect their health outcomes. So yes, that's an example, but I want it to be a little bit more granular. Yeah, and it sounds like the things you're talking about of segregation and redlining and the lack of ability exactly. to get mortgages, that creates pockets of poverty, food deserts, no parks, which leads to obesity, which and the schools aren't good. And all these factors keep adding up exponentially and creating health problems as well. Correct. So that is exactly it. So what you've described are what we call socio-environmental factors, which are social determinants of health, which is where you live essentially has significant implications for your health. And what we're also discovering is that this exposure to these adverse social determinants of health is not just something that you experience, but your body also can internalize it and can result in differences in the development of disease, uh, the susceptibility to disease, and also how you respond to treatment. Wow. Is that where the stress factor comes in, where the stress of living paycheck to paycheck or not having enough money and not being worried about your own safety and security, the stress can impact your body and create these negative health issues? So that is correct. So that's the current hypothesis that we have. So what we believe happens is that when you experience these adverse social determinants of health, and I want to clarify, when I say adverse social determinants of health, I mean things like poverty or having a stressful work environment or even having stressful relationships at home, your body tries to adapt to these new circumstances, right? So for example, what may happen is your blood pressure may go up and that's your body's response to dealing with having a stressful work environment. Now, if you're lucky and the stressful work environment goes away, your blood pressure should go back to normal because the stressor is gone and you are able to return to your baseline. But for some people, as you can imagine, the stressful work environment does not go away. The stressful life partner does not go away. The, the difficulty of trying to figure out how to pay for the next bill or pay for the expensive treatment doesn't go away. So what was supposed to be a temporary adjustment to a situation becomes a permanent adjustment. So you go from having you know um, hypertension secondary to stress to having persistent hypertension 
Or for example, uh, for some people, when they're stressed, they have insomnia, right? You need to be able to sleep for your body to rest and to reset itself appropriately. If you're persistently not sleeping, that can also result in adverse uh, health outcomes. So the world we live in is not, um, you can't isolate a patient from their social circumstance because that world is what's going to dictate how they respond to treatment, how they interact with the healthcare system, which is going to affect not only their development of disease, but also how they respond to treatments and how they survive from that disease. This concept of how your environment impacts your health, how recent is that? So it's actually not very recent. So the initial work of this, some of the, the frameworks I'm from some of the frameworks I'm discussing is rooted in Dr. Krieger's uh, concept of ecosocial theory. But actually, if you go back before that, Dr. Uh, W.E. Du Bois, uh, in one of his um, initial uh, studies, talked about how the poor health that African-Americans are facing at that time was most likely secondary to the environment they were living in and not because of their blackness. Also, studies that have been done um, looking at uh, British civil servants uh, noticed that individuals who were of lower socioeconomic status were more likely to die than individuals who were resource rich. So this idea that living in uh, a stressful um, social environment, living with stressful social environmental factors can result in disease initiation and also can result in premature death is not new. But I think the COVID pandemic has brought these ideas more to the forefront because we're seeing it happen again in real time. Yeah, I think that's definitely true that the COVID epidemic has brought forth the concept of stress as an underlier for health issue. And it's also made us think more about health disparity and how certain groups just don't have access to either vaccinations or primary care physicians and, and all those kind of things. Right, right. So I think one of the, there are not a lot of, there are like no positives to having a pandemic. <laughs> but right. one of the things about the pandemic is that I think it's brought to the forefront and brought to national discourse, the idea of, of health disparities and healthcare disparities and the concepts of social determinants of health, health equity and health inequity, that the world that you live in, the resources available to you affect the decisions that you make and also affect your overall health and can result in you having poor health outcomes. Yeah, and if and it just makes me think that I, in talking to some other doctors that we've talked about how people who don't have healthcare, who don't have healthcare facilities around them are not gonna get yearly mammograms and they're not gonna get their yearly PSA tests. They're not gonna get colonoscopies. Their cancers are gonna be detected in the much later stages, they're not going to have access to a great comprehensive cancer center like the James or the finances to pay for them or know what to do. And that leads to worse outcomes and more deaths. Exactly. And so what you've described, all the examples that you gave are what we've talked about, which is social determinants of health. It's all these things feed into that. And that's sort of mm -hmm. the bottom line in the impact and how, and, and, the most important one, the impact on people. Correct, correct. I, I think one of the things that we sometimes miss in medicine is that we focus on the disease, meaning diagnosing it, treating it. Um, but it's really important for us to recognize that, as I've mentioned earlier, people don't live in a vacuum. They live in an environment that has significant implications for their behavior and that has significant implications for the development of disease and response to treatment. And so really trying to understand how these social environmental factors or social determinants of health influence health is really important in helping us mitigate or reduce poor outcomes um, from diseases that people have. 
Yeah, it's almost like it's another form of prevention. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Dr. Sam will fill us in on some specifics of her research and what she's found and how that can be applied to helping people. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Dr. Samilia Obing-Jesse, or as she likes to be called, Dr. Sam. And you gave a great overview setting the foundation, the background of where, where and how and why these problems exist. And while many of them are societal problems that government and other types of organizations can address, there's a research component, I think, perhaps to sort of show the problems, because you need to understand the problem from a science standpoint before you can address it from a public policy standpoint, perhaps. Right. So a lot of my research has focused on trying to understand how these social determinants of health influence uh, breast cancer patients, specifically uh, trying to understand how it influences the stage of cancer they present with, um, how it might also affect their mortality from cancer. So some social determinants of health we've looked at, we've looked at insurance status at diagnosis. So looking to see the type of insurance, does the type of insurance someone has, does that, is there an association between that and the stage of cancer? So if it's an advanced cancer or an early cancer, and is there a relationship between that and death from cancer? And what we found were that people who had no insurance or Medicaid insurance were more likely to present with advanced stages of cancer and also had a worse overall mortality compared to people who were privately insured. So I can certainly understand why people with no insurance would present later stage because they can't afford to get mammograms. Why Medicaid? Shouldn't that be covered? So this was a unique population of Medicaid patients. We looked at women who got Medicaid through the Breast Cancer and Cervical Project. It's a federally funded project, but it's a state executed project that finds women who are underinsured or uninsured and provides them with preventative services like mammography and cervical cancer screening. So these are patients who um, they got they, although they had uh, Medicaid insurance, they were actually uninsured or underinsured when they got the Medicaid insurance. So there are a population of patients who got access to care, but they're not people who had who persistently had access to care. So when you actually um, look at patients who had Medicaid before diagnosis and those who had who got Medicaid at diagnosis, there is a difference. Studies have shown there is a difference. And those who had Medicaid when they were diagnosed do have better outcomes than those who got it just when they were diagnosed. But either way, the key point is that people who are Medicaid insured, because Medicaid also to get it, you have to have low socioeconomic status, right? So Medicaid insurance in and of itself has other requirements that might be adverse social determinants of health that would affect uh, individuals' ability to access healthcare and also to interact with the health system. And so those populations of patients when compared to privately insured patients do tend to have poor outcomes. 
Wow. And does that mean they also get lesser quality of care? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So one of the biggest drivers of um, breast cancer outcomes is the type of breast cancer you have and also the stage of breast cancer you have. So if you present with a more advanced stage of breast cancer, you have a higher probability of dying from your breast cancer than someone who presents with an earlier stage. Individuals who have Medicaid tend to present with later stages of breast cancer than individuals who have private insurance. And so they're kind of starting off on an unequal sort of footing where they're already presenting with a more advanced stage, which also has a higher probability of death from the disease. Is there any way to determine, you've talked about how stress and your environmental factors can increase your health risks. Is there any sort of way to determine how much or what percentage, or if at all that increases breast cancer cases? So that's something that we're working on. And so what we're trying to do is there is a concept called allostatic load. Allostatic load describes your, it's a a composite score. So it's a combined score that looks at multiple physiologic systems. When we talk about physiologic systems, we mean like the way your heart functions or the way your lung functions or the way your body metabolizes things. So we look at all these different systems and we assign you a score. A high score means that your body is stressed And a low score means that your body is not as stressed. And what studies have shown are that people who have a high allostatic load also tend to have adverse social determinants of health like childhood trauma, workplace stress, low socioeconomic status. So we think that's a biological measure of the stress that people are experiencing. People can tell you they're stressed out by by filling out a form, but the allostatic load also provides us with a biological correlate to that stress. So we're trying to do exactly what you described, just trying to understand how this biological response to stress also affects, you know, stage of diagnosis, type of breast cancer, response to treatment, and also death from cancer. What we're finding is that patients who have a high allostatic load when they're diagnosed with breast cancer, with actually cancer, um, have a worse, um, a higher mortality, so have a higher chance of death overall, but also have a higher chance of death from cancer itself. So we have some signal that this particular um, biological correlate is associated with outcomes in cancer, but we don't have all the mechanistic details worked out yet. So it would seem like um, diagnosing people with this allostatic, um, what was the second word? Allostatic, <laughs> allostatic load. The load, this load after they've been diagnosed with cancer is, is of course important, but perhaps how do you diagnose people with that before they have cancer to reduce that? So they don't get illnesses. And so we don't routinely measure allostatic load. You can think of it as a, like I said, a biological correlate because Although the idea has been around since 1993, there's still a lot of research to try to um, homogenize it. By that, I mean, there are different ways to calculate allostatic load and there isn't one specific way to do it yet. So I think until we come up with a, a set of biomarkers, biomarkers represent the physiologic systems that we look at. So once again, the heart, the lungs, the liver, once we come up with a standardized set of biomarkers to calculate it, I think it'll be easier to do some of what you've discussed. But as I mentioned, it's an area of active research where we're still trying to define which system should we look at, which biomarkers should we include, when should we measure it, how often should we measure it. The concept itself has validity, meaning that the idea that we can measure your stress through this makes sense, but there's still a lot of kinks that need to be worked out. 
yeah, I may have put you on the spot with this because you're still in the early stages, but I did because it's this sounds so fascinating and that it'll have amazing opportunities to help people down the line once you really dial it in. This concept of outside of load has been around since 1993, and there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of standardizing it. And then for those of us who are our clinicians, in terms of finding a set of biomarkers that we can consistently use for, you know, all of our patients, and also so that we can compare across, you know, different populations. Okay. Um, 20 years is not that long in the world of cancer research. So hopefully in the next 20, you'll, you'll, you'll get it dialed down perfect. Now, I know another area of your research has to do with triple negative breast cancer. And just let's see if I can remember correctly. Triple negative breast cancer is when the three hormones that usually fuel cancer and can be targets for therapy are not present, which means it's harder to treat. Am I close? <laughs> yes, yeah, so that is mostly correct. So uh, triple negative uh, refers to two hormones, estrogen and progesterone. And the third thing is a protein called HER2. And so you were correct in that when someone is diagnosed with a triple negative breast cancer, it means that all those three receptors were negative on their cancer cells. Now it is a more aggressive uh, type of breast cancer in that patients who have triple negative breast cancer tend to be more likely to die from their cancer than the other subtypes of breast cancer. And that's because the normal treatments don't seem to work and you haven't quite got there with new treatments for triple negative. Correct. So our management of triple negative breast cancer is still evolving and our knowledge about triple negative breast cancer is still evolving. And so what we're trying to do, and this is what I've been working with Dr. Stover Anderson and also Dr. Rancor, I, I mentioned that earlier, is that we have a Pelotonia Idea Award that looks at patients who have triple negative breast cancer and we're trying to create a risk assessment tool to identify patients who are at risk for rapid relapse. And we define rapid relapse as either uh, the cancer coming back within 24 months or dying within 24 months of the cancer diagnosis. And the population of patients that we're looking at are patients who are in the non-metastatic setting, meaning the cancer has not spread beyond their breast and their armpit. And our hope is that this tool that we create can help clinicians identify which patients are at risk of having this rapid relapse. Now, is this population of patients with the triple negative breast cancer, how does that sort of intersect with health, health disparity? So what we did was that we looked at patients in the SEER database. SEER is a population-based cancer registry that represents about 28% of all cancers in the U.S. And we wanted to understand if there were certain social determinants of health that were associated with a high probability of rapid relapse. We defined rapid relapse as death or recurrence, meaning the cancer coming back within 24 months of diagnosis in patients who did not have metastatic disease at diagnosis. Metastatic disease describes cancer that has left the breast and gone somewhere else in your body. So all the patients in the study only had cancer either in their breast or their armpit, but had not gone anywhere else in their body. What we found were that the, there were differences in social determinants of health, meaning that people who had rapid relapse had certain types of social determinants of health. For example, they were more likely to report being single, which makes sense because studies have shown that social support is actually important in terms of cancer outcomes. Uh, there was a study done where women who reported social isolation 
are more likely to have their tumor progress. So there is a relationship between your social network and also your uh, cancer progression. We also noted that women who were uninsured were more likely to have rapid relapse. Once again, rapid relapse is death or the cancer coming back within 24 months. We also found that people who identified as black race were more likely to have rapid relapse. Now, what I wanna explain is that race is different than ancestry. Race is a social construct that's determined by um, you know, economic, social, or political interests. And that's inherently different than ancestry. Ancestry looks at differences uh, within uh, DNA, within populations of people, and defines some as either European, African, or Asian, which is different than the construct of race, which is based on phenotype. Phenotype is things like your hair, your skin color, or your eye color. And so when we talk about race in the study, we're talking about race, the social construct, and not ancestry. I also want to mention that it's important to study race because the race that the society you live in assigns you determines how they're going to treat you. And how they treat you determines your access to health resources, determines your access to power and also your access to prestige. So although race is a social construct, it's important to understand because it determines how you're treated and also the types of social determinants of health you have access to. Once you determine that in your study with the triple negative breast cancer and you've determined that women who are isolated, black women have lesser outcomes, how do you turn that into preventing this from, from creating better outcomes? So one of my um, co-investigators on this project is Dr. Anderson, and she has devised a stress reduction program that has been uh, utilized in breast cancer patients. And what that specific program does is that it helps patients uh, find ways to reduce their stress. And what her study showed were that patients were able to reduce their stress, live longer, and were less likely to have the cancer come back. So what we're doing is that we're taking that same stress reduction program, but now we're including a component to address social determinants of health. So we're integrating a social worker, the social workers are the individuals who work in addressing things like, you know, uh, difficulty with transportation, difficulty with uh, paying utilities, um, and, all, and other issues that might arise uh, secondary to health-related social needs. So by having this comprehensive stress reduction program, it also includes a component that addresses social determinants of health. We're hoping to help improve these outcomes in these patients. Now, Barbara Anderson was on the podcast and we talked about that and she actually did a mindfulness stress reduction uh, exercise for us. And you're right. Nice, nice. It's, that we all have stress and having cancer is going to multiply your stress by like a hundred times. And just those little things of taking a walk or sitting down and meditating or mindful eating and all those things, you don't think they have an impact, but your science is proving they do. They do. And so her, the results from that study have been very compelling in that even 11 years after the initial uh, study, patients who, uh, participate in the stress reduction program have a much better uh, survival. So they're still uh, living longer and they also have a lower chance of the cancer coming back. I do want to make sure that I, I address one part of your question, which is what we do about the um, sort of structural, so governmental policy and sociocultural values that drive some of these uh, disparities. And that's something really that would have to be addressed at, at, at a policy level, right? So coming up with policies that actually improve health equity, which is 
coming up with policies and sociocultural norms that allow everybody to reach a full health potential. Uh, that's something that we can't do within a study. <laughs> that's something that requires societal input. But we're hoping that studies such as ours and a lot of the literature coming out, uh, you know, because of the COVID pandemic, looking at health disparities and, and health equity will help us as a society think of, think of ways that we can help those who were less fortunate amongst us uh, be able to reach their full health potential. Well, what would a, a, a federal or societal or statewide public policy change look like? Um, and my initial thought was that the Affordable Care Act was a step in that direction, but one step. What are some of the other things that public policy could do to address and reduce these disparities? So there are multiple avenues to address that. Some of them can be environmental. Remember the issues they had in Flint with the water that was um, yeah. contaminated? That's something where you know appropriate governmental policy and oversight could have mitigated some of that. Other things are things like education. Education is a very important social determinant of health. The higher your education, the more income you earn, also the better opportunities that you have for employment and the longer you live. So creating an educational system that is more equitable. Currently, the system we have uh, depends on taxes of people who live in a community. So if you live in a community that's resource rich, you're going to have access to better schools than someone who lives in a community that's resource poor. So finding ways to ensure that all our young people have access to high quality education and are able to reach their full academic potential is a way that as a society, we can improve and mitigate some of these adverse social determinants of health. The other thing too is just, you know, social cultural buy-in. It's having these types of discussions that we're having about some of these, you know, um, social environmental factors and how we as a society can develop more social cohesion, which is togetherness, and also leverage our social capital, which is our social network to improve the health outcomes for all the people in our society. Wow, that, that's a big task. And it makes me wonder that it's such a big task. You, you need to change millions of hearts and minds and public policy. And we seem to be heading in actually the opposite direction nationally in, 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 in terms of public policy. How do you stay motivated and not get frustrated and keep doing this great work? So we actually did a study looking at the implications of the Affordable Care Act in Ohio, specifically focusing on breast cancer patients. And what we found was that the implementation of the Affordable Care Act has actually narrowed or mitigated some of the disparities that we were seeing. So studies have shown that um, since the implementation of the ACA, patients are presenting with earlier stages of breast cancer, which is good because an earlier stage means also a better survival. We also noticed that uh, disparities in treatment had also been reduced uh, based on our study. And we also noticed that women who were getting mastectomies, mastectomies is when you have the whole breast removed. Uh, since the Affordable Care Act, we're more likely to get breast reconstruction, which can have implications for body image and also um, for um, helping the patients uh, deal with the side of, not the side effects, but with the effects of having cancer. So we are noticing significant changes and improvements with the Affordable Care Act, not just here in Ohio, but also in other states. So that makes me hopeful that, you know, having those kinds of governmental policies that are having um, implications for patients at the state and national levels are ways that we can mitigate and address some of these disparities that we've discussed today. And you're creating the science that will hopefully create more public policy advances. Yes. Awareness and also uh, uh, create advances in, in trying to, to mitigate a lot of this. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you. This was really an interesting and important discussion. And I learned a lot. And maybe down the road, you can come back and fill us in on some more of your 
scientific studies and the results and ways in which you're continuing to improve um, health disparity. Thank you very much for having me, and I'll be happy to come back. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Soloff Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.